chapter 5, verse 21, and we'll read just the um, handful of words that are Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Um, in Ephesians 5, 21, Paul says this. He says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So now um, we are going to deal with an issue today that is problematic for all of us, whether we're married or not. And I think that's maybe... I'm praying that God has blessed me through this to land in a good place with our uh, preaching and, and, and attempting to understand Christian marriage and that it is in, in an idea that is good for all of us. Um, each marriage in our church carries upon it the glory of God and the relationship between Christ and His church. Marriage does that. Our, the reason why we talk about it is because our marriages are so important to the mission of the church. When our marriages go astray, the mission of the church is derailed by that. That's how important it is. Um, I, a couple of quotes, and I know people are tired of all my quotes, but Noel Piper, the, the wife of John, in a book I'm reading about marriage, wrote this, said, Marriage refers to Christ and the church. Every marriage, no matter how pendulum-like because of our sin, every marriage even if the couple doesn't care a bit about Jesus. So my title is somewhat of a misnomer because there's really no way to, to have a marriage that's not Christ-reflecting. Even if it's a marriage that's ruled by the devil, it still reflects Christ in the very same way. The best way I can, I can explain it is this, is that in the same way that the Old Testament law reflected the glory of God and the glory of the New Testament of redemption in the blood of Christ, if the Jews kept it faithfully or violated it, it was exactly the same reflection of either the glory of God or the need for a Savior. Whether my marriage works or my marriage doesn't, it still reflects the glory of the One who installed it. Because it's a covenant and it belongs to Him primarily. It is for my good. For my good for your good, for the good of the family and the good of the church, but it always brings glory to God, even if it requires discipline. It still brings glory to God. Look, our Lord makes this connection, because it's in verses throughout the Bible, but one that stuck with me as, as I studied was Isaiah 62.5. For as a young man marries a young woman, so, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Our marriages are a reason for rejoicing. God's marriage to the church is a reason for His rejoicing. He rejoices over us. So marriage is that, that has a, as a final end product, the, the joy of, of God, which is, which is fantastic. Look, in response to the world, what we try to have here, covenantal Christian marriage, has dual purposes. There are two things that it does. One, the heart of the marital covenant is making a gospel declaration of the glory of God through the love and submission of husband and wife to the demands of their Lord. So when we are married in a way that reflects positively on, uh, on Jesus... It is a gospel declaration. It means that, that we it's part of our testimony to the world. Our marriages are the heart of our testimony. And I think that's what's troubling for some of us. Some of us have probably been at early times in our marriages where we were attempting to be, 
be faithful. And our faithfulness seemed to, to be harmful to our marriage and not helpful. Our faithfulness seemed, it felt at least, to not be easy within the bonds of marriage. Because there was a competition between the demands of the marriage and the demands of the gospel. And they are to be the same. Because we had managed to be possibly two believers in a covenant relationship, but not conducting ourselves in, 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 in a Christian way. Which is, which is difficult because while the covenant itself reflects the glory of God, the intentionality of those covenant members makes it either profitable to God for glory or profitable to God for instruction. Which means we can come together as believers united in the church and not bring glory to God in the way we behave with each other. Just because everybody's a believer doesn't mean that the association is honoring. It's intentional. We've got to try. We've got to set it as a goal. So that's one of the things we're doing now is acknowledging that my, the, that my marriage weighs upon the cross My marriage weighs upon the gospel. And for the gospel to be proclaimed by First Baptist Church, I have to strengthen my marriage. That I get something out of it, but that the church does too. That when when the marriage prospers and grows, the church is always strengthened by that. That what we do, we do for each other. And not just within the bonds of our marriages. Um... Also, marriage is the way in which the provision of God establishes an antidote to the loneliness and isolation of the fallen world so that husbands and wives can properly raise godly children. We get married because it's such a difficult and evil world in which we live. We get married specifically for the purpose of building godly enclaves against the horrors of what we see around us. We get married to build safe homes. Where children are raised. Where they're raised. Now, as we talked about, some of us got together yesterday for prayer and just really wound up talking about, about manhood in general. And I think what was, what was wonderful about it was we realized, A, the depths of how hard it is to raise kids. And also, I just, the best way I can put it, guys, is, man, it takes kind of a ruthless heart to raise kids right, doesn't it? You can feel sorry for your kids to the point that you ruin them. You can, you can feel so sorry and so compassionate towards your kids that you override the, the discipline of God. That, that we are walking a fine line between being, being harsh and being, being permissive. And it's very difficult. And the Bible shows us the way, but it doesn't necessarily tell us where to put every foot, does it? Sometimes we feel like we're on slippery stones. It's hard to do that. The same thing is reflected in our, in our, in our marriages. It's the same exact idea that it takes so much wisdom to be married. And it can little, tiny, incremental things can destroy them. can take them to dark places. It takes this, this idea of awareness and vigilance that we're going to talk about today. Because in the end, my goal is to highlight little things that grow into big things. So, but, but the end product, though, is to raise these godly children. As a church, our desire must be to promote qualities, excuse me, to promote both qualities in spite of the severe challenges that marriage faces. Even if you're doing everything in the world 
that you can think of to make your marriage godly, it still is an uphill battle. Because the culture around us does not promote healthy, God-honoring marriage. It promotes the opposite. Now, this is what John Piper said in the same book. He said, so I start with the assumption that my own sin and selfishness and cultural bondage makes it almost impossible for me to feel the wonder of God's purpose for marriage. Now, I'm going to stop there and comment on essentially his comments. Exactly right. Highlight that. It's not Bible, but it's very good stuff. The worst enemy your marriage has is you. It's not your husband, it's not your wife, it's not the other one. The worst enemy your marriage has is you. Same thing goes for me. The worst enemy my marriage has is me. Is me. I'm all those things he talks about. I have sin, I'm selfish, and I have a cultural bondage. There is within me an innate desire to be like others and not like Christ. I have to stop myself and redirect myself constantly, and I bet you do it too. The problem you may have is is that you're doing it and you don't realize you're doing it because you've never questioned what you do within your marriage. Never questioned it. But what else does he say? He says this, the fact that we live in a society that can defend two men or two women entering a sexual relationship and with wild inconceivability call it marriage shows that the collapse of our culture into debauchery and anarchy is probably not far away. Piper's not really an alarmist about these matters is, again, exactly on point. The point is, is that it's not going to get easier for you to be married. If you are young and married right now, the road ahead of you is very difficult. For our children and our grandchildren, it will be nigh on impossible. Aside from the glory, from the will of God and the power of God, it will be impossible for them to have Christ-honoring marriages because the whole definition of marriage will have completely changed by then. Even though it did not believe it, our culture at one time parroted what God taught about marriage. It has stopped doing that. For that reason, we now will try to be married in a culture in which our marriages may very well be the enemy of what the culture says and not the goal of what the culture once proclaimed. They'll be seen as wrong and backwards. So it's tough. It's really tough here. Now, taking Piper at his... uh, at his word, we must acknowledge that marriage in the second decade of the 21st century exists in a culture of attack and redefinition. Both are bad. Both are really attacks. When we start to change definitions, we wind up in situations that we that no longer even attempt to honor God. In opposition to the cultural climate of the nation and endemic sinfulness of people, we will strive to craft a church that is God-honoring and supportive of marriage. Now, how do we do that? Let me give you an example. I know my examples are long-winded, and oftentimes they're too studious, and I lose you. But try to pay attention, because this is recent history. Well, for some of us, it's recent history. There are a couple guys out there, Wilson and Kelly. They're famous for what was called the broken windows theory of policing. Anybody in the room have any idea what the broken windows theory was? It was made popular in the 90s, by um, made popular in the 90s by um, by uh, Rudy Giuliani 
and, and Bill Bratton, his police, his chief of police, or commissioner of police in New York. The idea was simple, and I may just simply dispense with the, the quote for, 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 you know, for consideration of time. The idea is this, is that if a window is broken out in a building and it's never fixed, given enough time, every window will be broken out in that building. And as, as these guys said, it doesn't matter if the window is in a great neighborhood or a poor neighborhood, bad neighborhood. It simply doesn't matter. Because we've now illustrated that nobody cares that the window's broken out, before long somebody will come along and break them all out. It doesn't matter, though, that, you know, and there's no such thing as, as a neighborhood, for instance, that loves windows, a neighborhood that hates windows. By virtue of saying this doesn't matter means everybody's going to do it. If they never write a speeding ticket in front of this church... Ever, under any circumstances, there will be no effective speed limit in front of this church, will there be? Everybody knows you can't get a ticket. If you can't get a ticket, then guess what? Drive as fast as you want. It's now the Mize Autobahn. Because nothing's illegal, therefore everything is now permissible. Right? So what they did in New York was, was, was write tickets for broken windows and write tickets for abandoned cars and write tickets for trash left on doorsteps and write a lot of minor tickets because it showed that suddenly we care about the little things. If you care about the little things, you must therefore care about the big things. That if, you, if your warfare is against murder and robbery and rape and drugs in your community, you're losing. Because if you got all those things... How, you, how do you eradicate that? But what you do is you establish a culture of lawfulness in opposition to a culture of lawlessness. And what you wind up getting is a much more disciplined society. And if you think about it, Giuliani cleaned up Times Square, which had been nothing but, but low lives, to be honest with you, for decades. For almost all of my life at that time, it had been... Midnight Cowboy, the movie from the 60s. That was Times Square. Now it's all Disney-fied. Now it's, now it's clean, relatively speaking, compared to what it was. And it all came from this idea of paying careful attention to the little bitty things and not being permissible about those things. If you're not permissible, or excuse me, not permissive about the little things, then you don't have any trouble disciplining the big things because there are very few things. But by being permissive, you tell people that you can do increasingly more hostile things. So now all I'm saying is this, is that our goal in marriages, which are so precious to this church and the kingdom, is not that we attempt to immediately solve the most egregious offenses against the covenant. I think that's what we do. Is that when marriages start to fall apart, we panic. And what we should have been doing was tending them when the grass started to grow. Was tending them on the very first tiny little crack. Because by the time the foundation is ruptured, it's too late maybe to save it. Aside from the glory of God and His power. That what we need to do was tend them all along. An attempt needs to be made to repair every broken window that's seen in a marriage because broken windows are an invitation to greater acts of violation and criminality. Because we let this slide, and then we let this slide, and we let this slide. Brother Chris, we wind up moving the line. Do you know what I mean? This was the line. Because it's easy to step over it, nobody cares. Before long, the line has been moved to places that we simply can't stomach, right? But then it's too late. Because we have a history of moving the line. 
Now, this is not just as a church. This is people within individual marriages. There's responsibility all around for this. Therefore, what are the minor offenses that must be stamped out so that major infractions are not allowed to manifest? Let's find the little things. Now, I'll be honest with you. I think the little things are always attitudes first. Nobody starts out being a bad employee, do they? Some people may be an incompetent employee. They just simply can't do what they've been hired to do. There's really no shame in that, right? Everybody's got limitations. Nobody's perfect. And everybody runs into a job, to be blunt, they just simply can't handle. I've been in jobs in my life that I wanted to do a good job. I just simply couldn't do a good job. I didn't have the necessary skills to do a good job. Hey, hire me as the, as, uh, the third string quarterback of the Saints. You better hope. You better hope that the guy ahead of me lasts because you're not going to win a lot of ball games with this. Not because I don't want to, not because I wouldn't work hard, but just simply because I'm incompetent. I don't have the ability to do that. And to expect me to do that is not shameful. It's really shameful, not shameful that I can't live up to it. It's shameful to whoever expects me to live up to it. Now, mind you, I understand in our working life, more often than not, we don't see the difference, right? We don't see when we've overmatched someone. We don't see when we've given somebody more than they can handle. More often than not, bosses just simply don't care. I'll be honest with you, there aren't a lot of classes for how to be a boss. And if there were, none of them would pay any attention anyway. Okay? So we'll just say that. However, however, aside from that, the real idea is this, is that I believe every time, I'm speaking from experience, every time Tony got in real trouble at work was because my attitude soured long before my work ethic did. At some point along the way, I decided either it wasn't worth it or I didn't want to do it anymore or I didn't want to listen. Ever happened to you? You don't have to admit it. But I bet for a lot of people in this room, you've been through that very thing. Well, you realize my attitude turned a year ago or two years ago. It's just now starting to show itself in my work. But I decided I didn't want to do this anymore a long time ago. Now it's so hard because attitude is so vital. And in marriage, when we start to adopt wrongful, unchristian attitudes, just like in, in, our, in our work life, in our, in, our, in our church life, we start to adopt unchristian attitudes. We stop manifesting the glory of God and start manifesting the limitations of people. Because in the end, what we're going to talk about today is not just how to have a better marriage. I'll tell you this. You give me Christians who are willing to live out every attitude that Christ displayed for the glory of God, they're going to have a great marriage. They're going to have a great work life. It's not going to be, nothing's going to be perfect. They have a great marriage, a great work life. They have a great time in the church. Now, I'm just, what I know more about than marriage is the church, to be honest with you. And virtually everything that's gone wrong in the church that I've ever seen went wrong in attitude long before it went wrong in action. The attitude turned bad a long time before. So we have, to, we have to look at those things. Now, I know it's funny to talk to a bunch of adults like this because we've said that, haven't we? I don't like your attitude. Or I don't like your tone. You ever say that to your kids? I hate your tone. I don't like your tone. And what we're having to do is look in the mirror and say, hey, look, I don't like your tone. What a lot of us in this room, whether it's marriage or not, look and say, look, my tone in my marriage is wrong. And I remember the first, the first point. 
The greatest enemy your marriage has is you. So if somebody's got a bad attitude in your marriage, guess who it probably is? You. That includes me. That includes me. I'm not leaving myself out. I promise you that. So, so one of those is submission in the biblical sense. Here's that here's the idea of attitude. Submission. Submission in the biblical sense, and not just a controversial demand placed upon women. It should be controversial. It's reason it's controversial. It's because it's been used wrongly time and time and time and time again. It was used to tell women that in marriage you had to shut up. That we weren't leading this the way Christ leads the church. That we were leading this because I was going to lord over you. Now the problem with that is this. I'm explain really fast. I'm going to walk you through this as best I can, as quickly as I can. The problem with that is this. Is that like almost everything else, I think we talked about this yesterday. When you see changes, you don't see a redirection of the course. You see the pendulum swing wildly. Wildly. So that we went from lording over wives with submission to producing generations of wives who wouldn't submit if you put a gun to their heads. From submission became a dirty word. I knew we were in trouble when I was doing uh, weddings and the vows said submit and I was having women tell me directly, I won't say that. I won't agree to that. And how many agreed to it but still didn't do it. But now let's talk about submission, what it really looks like. Let's do that before anybody gets too cranked. But the requirement to biblically submit as Christ demands one to another. What does biblical submission look like? One to another. In every sense, in church, in the home, at work, at play, in our friendships, we submit one to another. That is the goal. Not... Not the man who sits down and waits for his wife to fix his plate and bring it to him. I was raised by one of those. And I'm like, that doesn't honor God. It honors the man. Now, some of us were raised in exactly the same situation, right? It's a hard thing to hear that things that we saw our whole lives, we thought were okay or not God-honoring, isn't it? And you're going you're gonna to rebel against me if you don't watch out. So let's look and see what the Scriptures say and not just depend on what we saw. Because too often we let our experiences validate the Bible and not the Bible validate our experiences. Look in our focal passage, Paul simply says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The concept which Paul shares with us is defined by the Greek, Greek word, hupotasso, which means to place or rank under, to obey. Look, our submission, hupotasso is, is hypo, which means under, and tasso, defined as arranged. So it's literally to place under or arrange under. To each other is a reflection of the ethos of Christ. Look at what, look what Paul says about our Jesus. Now, we talk about this one thing that I was warned against in my spirit on the front pew of this church right just before I got up here was the idea of how many people climb into pulpits and, to be honest with you, preaching slogans and not Bible. Jesus, take the wheel. It's stupid, I know. But the reality is this, is that mo a lot of the sermons I've heard in my life were no deeper than that. And I just want, how? What do you mean by that? 
Well, I don't want to walk away doing that to you. I want you to know exactly what God says about submitting. How He says it to everybody. How it's literally in the face of each and every one of us. As I've illustrated before, if you know, God calls me home, God calls all these men home, and the next man to climb in this pulpit is 19 or 20 or 21 years old, the Bible is abundantly clear. You submit to who's preaching. His. Not because you want to, not because you like it, not because it pleases you. You do it because God said to. Because the one that we ultimately all submit to, you submit to. Okay? That's just clear. It's just clear. So, so, let's talk. Paul says about Christ in Philippians 2, 5-8. through 8, He says, Have this mind among yourselves. Direct command, right? How, what kind of mind is the Christian believer to have? If you are a believer in Christ, if you've been born again... What kind of mind do you have? A mind full of your own will? A mind full of your own pride? A mind full of your own self-satisfaction? A mind full of your own ambition? A mind full of yourself? No. Have this mind among yourselves. It couldn't be more clear. He's saying to each and every one of us in this room, if you have wanted Jesus, if you've claimed Jesus, if you walked an aisle or some silliness like that, to be honest with you, and you have not surrendered your mind to Jesus, you are lying. Bottom line, you are lying. Have this mind among yourselves. It doesn't make it automatic. It means we've got to do this. Which is yours in Christ Jesus. It's there. It's waiting for us. He's given it to us. It's made possible through Him. Who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Even though He was literally God. And we'll talk about that but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The command from Paul is to have the mind of Jesus that motivated the condescension and the self-robbery, the kenosis of God, of the cross. So Jesus is literally God. He's the God's Son. Of the Holy Trinity. He did not cling to his eternal reality, but sacrificed the honor to him for the glory of redeeming the entire world. So, what Jesus, who deserved to place himself on the ultimate throne, did was give up the throne for our glory. He set the example by saying, I am everything and I will become nothing for the good of those who are literally nothing. Now, I know it's not. It's not even for me as it should be. But this ought to be an antidote to every scrap of pride we have. This ought to be an antidote to every feeling of standing I have. This ought to be an antidote to every single time that I want to, in my own, the rebellion of my flesh, ignore what is said to me for the glory of God. This ought to be an antidote. I know it's not, but it should be. The fact that it fails even in the church is a measure of the church and not a measure of the power of the word. <clears throat> to accomplish this, the Savior literally becomes the servant of a world that despises Him from foundation to conclusion. He's not giving Himself up for a bunch of people that by nature love Him. He gave up everything that was His for those who hated Him. And many still do. He's not submitting to us because we love Him. He's submitting to us because He's obedient and faithful. He condescends Himself to us 
Because God said to do it. The actions of the cross are a measure of the depth of the humility of Christ. And they are the example that the Lord gives us of how to be sacrificial and selfless in our marriages, in our churches, and in our daily lives. Sacrificial and selfless. What's a Christian look like? They are sacrificial and they are selfless. Now most aren't. Most of us in this room, the pastor speaks, most of the time is not sacrificial and not selfless. It does not make it less true. Just because I don't model it or you don't model it or your leadership doesn't model it, I'll be honest with you. I'll be honest with you. doesn't make it less true. Christ's humility is demonstrated by self-denial, by humbling Himself, and the willing surrender of His life for our sins. It now is up to us in our private and public lives, married or not, to live the creed of the cross for others to see, learn from, and derive benefits from. We've got to try to live like that for the good of those around us. I've got to try to live like that for my children to see, for, for, for our grandchildren to see. How many of us have to realize, well, have to, have to admit right now that we've lived out the opposite of this creed? That when we were supposed to be showing humility, we showed, we showed selfishness and pridefulness. We thought about ourselves and our accomplishments more than we ever thought about, about the cross. How uncomfortable does it have to be for God, for supposedly godly men and godly women for us to repent over how we live on a daily basis? Look, the Bible defines submission with four key verses, which will serve as our conclusion and also a pattern for our lives. We're going to see what he says here, these four things that we should do to really live a submitted life in our marriages and outside of our marriages. Paul explains that the basis of Christian humility in marriage and other avenues is in a healthy fear of God. In the end, if I am arrogant and not humble, it is simply because I do not fear the one that's said to be humble. I'm not afraid of it. Look, I've had people say it in my face. I guess God will have to understand. The depth of God's understanding is hell. That's how much God understands when we reject His Word. God will not understand. He knows what His knowing why you do things, His knowing why I do things, should not inspire us to believe that He has direct compassion on rebellion that's in His face. We know the difference because we're being called to repentance. That's the measure of God's understanding, is that we are to repent of our sins. That's the measure of it. It's clear. Healthy fear of God. He writes in 2 Corinthians 5.11, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, I hope it is known also to your conscience, without any hesitation. Now, I declare that all of us would be better husbands and wives, employees, friends, and brothers and sisters in Christ if we would embody a healthy fear of God. Fear should control our every word and deed. If I can say one thing about 23 years of leadership in a church is this. I have heard so many things uttered out in public in business meetings. That would say to myself, if we had any fear, we'd never dare talk like that. If there's any fear, if we, and I'll be honest with you, if you don't fear God, I don't see how you know who He is. 
Because everything I read in the Scriptures tells me that I should fear Him. Everything that I read in the Scriptures tells me that He's got hell for those who don't. He's not a cosmic bully, but He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And kings and lords do not negotiate with their servants. They command and we do. Fear should control our every word and our every deed. In Galatians 5.13, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Though we are free in Christ. See, this is not the antidote. This is, this is our understanding where we are. The reality is we are called to freedom. We are given an inherent liberty that comes from the blood of Christ being applied to our lives. We are now free agents. Agents of free will given forth into the world to, to bring glory to God. We, are, we have freedom. There's no doubt about that. Though we're free in Christ, the blood of the cross purchases a bound liberty that requires we pursue the glory of God through our actions. Though we have liberty, the best way I can put it is, it is a liberty that's bound to Jesus by the blood. It's a liberty that says, I am not free to glorify myself. I'm not free to do what I want to do despite what the Bible says. I'm not free to live my life any way I want to live. And God just doesn't care. That does not exist. That type of Christianity does not exist within the pages of the Scriptures. The fact of the matter is, as soon, literally as soon as we are redeemed, God sets about through the preached Word, through the written Word, through prayer and devotion and others around us guiding us to live lives that bring glory to Him and not glory to ourselves. It is a mockery of the blood and a mockery of the cross that, may, that would lead us to believe that we can do what we want to and still have our salvation. It is nonsense. It is pure and utter nonsense. If you and I are not searching the Scriptures and living for the Scriptures and seeking out God's will in our lives, then we are dishonoring the one that we claim saved us. Though we are free in Christ, the blood purchases a bound liberty that requires us to pursue the glory of God through our actions. In marriage, work, play, or church, we must seek the Lord through a rejection of our flesh and His desires and serving one another. We're still required to reject that which pulls us, beginning at home and extending throughout our lives. We seek God by being enslaved to each other. We serve one another. The standard which Christ sets for us is expressed by Paul's words in Philippians 2.3. When he writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. The fleshly traps which are inherent to our fallen condition are ambition and conceit. We just think too highly of ourselves and we want to be somebody. And boy, you'll see it in the church. You will see it in the church in a second, but I'll tell you this much, you'll see it in homes too. You'll see it in homes. You'll see wives that want to dominate husbands and husbands that want to dominate wives. Wives that want the marriage to be all about them and husbands that want the marriage to be all about them. You see competition among husbands and wives. And it is all a function of the ungodly ambition and ungodly conceit which dwells naturally within us. Now look, I said I, I came into the world, folks, into a world in which husbands dominated their wives. And, and once again, the pendulum has swung so far. I now see in the world more than anything else, um, wives will say to me things like, man, I want my husband to lead, and I want to say, let him. Let him. Because allowing your husband to be the leader does not mean that you allow him to lead, but you've got veto power. Well, I let him lead if it's a good idea. I let him lead if I think he's right. 
That's how Congress and the president work. How well is that going? It doesn't work. It's not God-centered. In our marriages and in our church, we must create an environment of humility and rebuke the drive within ourselves to have our own way and to dominate each other. Christ, the reigning King of all creation, put Himself aside for the glory of the cross. Our lives should reflect that reality. Our lives must reflect the fact that Christ gave up everything to save us. And now we turn our back on everything, even those things that we think are rightly ours. And we do it, why? For the glory of God. So that nobody reigns over anybody. Nobody is greater than anybody. Whether in the church or in the home. Each submitting to each other. Brothers and sisters in Christ. Finally, Peter brings our seeking to a climax by saying in 1 Peter 5, 5, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Look, the younger subject to the older, the wife subject to the husband, the church subject to the pastors, all recognizing and honoring God through authority. We embrace this authority because God said it is good. God said it's good for elders in the church. Have your act together so much spiritually that young people should want to follow you. Young people should think it crazy not to follow someone that demonstrates so much to the glory of God. If there's one problem we as the elders would have in our churches that oftentimes, as I've said in the past, you know, it's easy to be followed if you like you know where you're going. But if you don't act like you know you know the way, nobody's going to want to follow you. So elders, get our, get our acts together. Husbands, have our act together. Husbands, be prayerful and not perfect. Be submissive and not arrogant. Husbands, lead from love and not lead from stubbornness. We want to be followed, act like we know where we're going. Church subject to pastors. We as pastors have to have our act together. It doesn't mean you're always going to like to hear it. We talked about that I've been praying over that a lot recently. We talked about that Wednesday night, I guess, is the idea is this, is that most people key into what you say till they don't like it. And then I won't, then I don't want to hear it anymore. It doesn't matter if the Bible says it or not. Because most of us really deep down think the Bible was written by Hallmark. It was written to make us feel better about ourselves. I'll be honest with you. The Bible offends me all the time, and it usually offends me before it offends you. That doesn't mean I get to say it's wrong. It doesn't mean you get to say it's wrong either. Thus saith the Lord used to matter, and it's going to matter again. But pastors, if we want to be followed, we need to act like we're men worthy of following. It starts with this one, but it goes to you too. We must act like men worthy of following. I can be honest with you, I don't think I've always done that. But you know what? Our leaders haven't always done that, and you haven't done it either. So all of us are off our high horse today. At least we've had it kicked out from under us. All recognize and honoring God through authority. However, the entire church, the entire family, the whole community of God simultaneously understands that God wars against our pride and pours out His grace on the humble. That, that's the final blow is this. is that God wars against pride. God hates pride. He gives grace to the humble. So what's the goal today? What's the final goal? How can I summarize this entire thing in 20 seconds that I've got left? And that is this. I have to look for, recognize, and surrender pride today if it's there. And you know what? 
I guarantee it is in each and every one of us, husband and wife, mother and father, son or daughter, members, leaders, everyone. There's pride. Pride is coming before our fall. Let's seek it and surrender today.